everybody, and welcome to the first podcast, a podcast of First Baptist Church Lake Butler, where the pastors gather to encourage and equip our church to engage the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. My name is Pastor Jonathan, and I'm joined by Pastor Jason. Pastor Stephen is not doing super well today. He's feeling a little bit out of it, and so is not able to join us. So we're going to carry on the conversation without him, but he will be missed. Another thing that's happening is there is a uh, thunderstorm right now. So mm. if you hear something in the background, it's not Jason's stomach. Oh, uh, thank you. Just heard. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, Jason, what are we uh, what are we going to talk about today? We're doing something new on the show, uh, something we haven't done before. We sent out a quick cast to our congregation to ask if they had any topics that they would like for us to discuss on the first podcast. And we're going to address a couple of those questions today. Really excited about this. We'll try to keep it kind of informal and just like you and I talking Mm -hmm. about a subject. And so we're going to tackle two of those questions today. So why don't you lead us off with the first one? Yeah. The first question that was submitted was just simply cremation versus burial. So at the end of somebody's life, as we are celebrating and remembering their life, we have this choice right now to either go forward with um, burying them and in, in all of the money and, and task that's involved in that, or there is cremation, mm-hmm. which is obviously the, the process where somebody is is burned and then they uh, the ashes are kept or buried, however that goes. And so the question is really, I think, just about what is a faithful Christian perspective and what we should do at the end of our lives, what maybe we should leave for instructions for those who come behind us, what's the best way to go about it? And I would just start off by saying that cremation um, has been historically, I think the Greeks did this like all the way back to like 3000 BC, maybe, but cremation and burning somebody's remains comes from Eastern religions. And that would kind of communicate that somebody's ultimate destiny was to be disintegrated. And so I think certainly in the ancient world, it was viewed by a lot of people as kind of a religious pagan practice. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I I don't think that that's necessarily what people think about today, but it is something worth considering. Yeah. If someone came to me, and I'm sure that it's happened, and said, Pastor, do you think it's wrong that I have my loved one cremated? I think my answer would be, I can't think of a scripture. I can't point you to where the Bible speaks explicitly uh, that it is wrong or right. I think the first time uh, that it comes up in scripture is around 1 Samuel 30, 31, Mm -hmm. where they uh, burned the bones of Saul and um, maybe Jonathan and just the little bit of reading that I did on a Gospel Coalition post was it, it was probably going to be a very negative um, experience to try to take them all the way back to Israel and what would happen to the corpse. And so it was just expedient that they do that, and, and it was not forbidden. Mm-hmm. So so that would be the first thing that I would say that I don't think – I don't have any authority to say, no, that would be a sin. Right. So since this is not a sin issue, we talk about the issues that are outside of a sin issue as like a conscience issue. So when you are, you know, a faithful follower of Jesus, we know that we have the spirit. We want to have wisdom with the people in our lives to be able to share about what we think is then the wisest thing to do. So I think that it's really good to just be thinking about what your 
what, what the service and just kind of how everything goes at the end of your life, what it communicates. And with burial, I mean, I, I know for some, this is a matter of expense. I mean, burial is a lot more expensive than cremation. But with burial, I think that there is a unique Christian belief that's being communicated through us having our bodies being put into the ground. And I think of a place like First Thessalonians 4, where we're told about what will happen at the end of time, where the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And then we're told, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then at that time, those who are alive will be caught up together. And that's when the, the kingdom will be fully consummated, will live with God in the new heavens and new earth. And that is really exciting. And I think burial has a particular way of shining a light on that truth mm -hmm. that we are awaiting the time when the resurrection of the body will come. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, that's not to say like we're going to disintegrate eventually anyway, but it's like a matter of anticipation. Yeah, I think the Bible's communicating that, well, of course it communicates that we are image bearers. We were given a body and it's, and it's precious and it matters to God and that he is going to continue uh, a body form in the future. Of course, it will be a glorified body. So don't misunderstand us. We're, we're not saying that God's not capable of taking a body that's decayed, whether it was you know, I hate to say someone was eaten by an alligator or right. they were consumed by fire or a bomb or utterly destroyed, whatever. God's going to be able to raise them to a glorified state. But we're trying at least to some degree to say the Bible teaches that there's significance in the body and image bearing. And you can, through a funeral service, express that honor. Mm -hmm. And, and there, there's, there's even an expression of care towards that person. Yeah. But I would add that that's just a principle. Right. And if a person's conscience was um, okay with cremation and not worried about that, and it's more important for us to save the expense, then you have freedom to do that. Yeah. There you go. Even in the ancient world, there was kind of a divide between people believing that the physical world was bad. Um, and I think. Paul addresses this in, in a lot of his letters. This is what was kind of called Gnosticism, but that the physical world is, is actually good. God has made it. As you said, we're, we're made in his image. And so I think Christians do want to think about the ways in which we live and how we can just demonstrate the fact that what God has made is good. Mm. And it's not like, oh, this could just be thrown away or it doesn't really matter how it's treated. No, like we want to take the the real natural world um, with responsibility. We want to handle it, you know, in a way that honors and glorifies God. Yeah. I say the amen there. Hope that was helpful. Question number two. This is uh, a topic that really does distinguish us as a church and it's one that uh, is definitely worth talking about. It is infant baptism. Infant baptism is a, a practice that has been around for a long time, maybe even back to the early church. And it has been um, something that has divided the church in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I think it is probably good to just say off the bat that 
infant baptism is not a matter that we locate in the like, this is what defines a Christian or not. Mm -hmm. If you believe it, you're a Christian, or if you don't believe it, you're not a Christian. I don't, we're not going to say that. This is, this is down the tier level yeah, of importance. It's not even a fellowship issue. Yeah. Meaning that we would not break fellowship with someone over their belief in infant bad, infant baptism or baptism by immersion or how it's defined as uh, pedo baptism or credo right. baptism. Jason, are there some figures that you admire and appreciate the work of who are pedo baptists? Absolutely. Uh, there are a lot of people that we read, that we listen to. Uh, Essentially, uh, a lot of the Presbyterian authors, so Paul Tripp, R.C. Sproul, Tim Keller would be some that come to mind. But then you can go back uh, further in history and you've got Calvin and Luther who also uh, practice paedo-baptism. So absolutely pe some people that we admire. Yeah, and and have been amazing, you know, helps to the church. They've done a lot of amazing good. And so we don't want to ever you know, diminish that or throw shade their direction. You know, it's, it's important to say like, this is an important topic, but it's not something that divides us. We mentioned Presbyterians. What, what are some other denominations or churches that practice infant baptism? I think Lutherans and I know the Orthodox church, which they're not Protestant, but I know that they practice infant baptism. What about Episcopalians? Anglican? Anglican, definitely. Episcopalian, I think it depends. They're, they don't have a lot of set rules so methodist could. methodist also i think methodists do yeah yeah so there are a lot yeah that's all that's coming to mind right now but. yeah so let's get into this w what would be the biblical basis um for holding this position to say that infants should be baptized okay well i'm gonna take a swing at it from a very simple perspective and then you kind of come back in and, and fill it in my understanding has been this that the sign of the Old Testament covenant was circumcision. Mm -hmm. And in the New Testament, uh, the sign of the covenant is baptism. Mm -hmm. And so it was given to the male children in the Old Testament. And now it will be given to all children in the New Covenant. The signs change, though, so it's not going to be circumcision. It's going to be baptism. That's how you identify as the people of God. And so basically, by implication, this is what they, the people of God did in the Old Testament. This is what we do in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's good to remember the sign of the covenant is not the thing that actually like has any working power. Mm -hmm. Just like in marriage, right? We, we give rings. Rings are not the thing which really makes you married or not. This is, this is a covenant, a promise you've entered into with somebody else. And the signs of the covenant in the old covenant circumcision and in the new covenant baptism, these things don't have saving power mm -hmm. to enter you into the covenant community. However, they're given to us by God as these visible signs that something is true about us and that we've we've entered into communion with, with God and with his people. And just because the, the, those sons were circumcised outwardly, the Bible is very clear that not all Israel is Israel, meaning right. there is a true Israel. You can have the outward circumcision and not have the circumcision of the heart, which makes you truly the people of God. 
But this outward sign did say that you were a part of the, that you identified with the covenant people of God. That's right. Yeah. And so if you looked in the New Testament for a verse that says, baptize your infants, you're not going to find it. Uh, and Presbyterians say the same exact thing. However, they they try to read all of scripture and put together kind of a list of things of, of like conclusions that then bring them into the practice of baptizing their infants in the church today. Mm-hmm. So and we'll put a link to show notes of a good article about why Presbyterians baptize their infants. But in general, what they are doing is they're saying that the children of those who are inside the covenant community have always been included within the covenant community. Not in a sense that like, okay, we know they're forgiven by God or, you know, that they've had all their sins pardoned, but they are still to be included almost kind of in a way of we talk about church membership. And so in the, I know at least in the Presbyterian world, what they do is they have children who are of at least one believing spouse in that family they have them baptized as a sign to mark them off and say, these are people who we're going to treat as part of our community. We're going to, we're going to commit to, you know, discipling them of having them as a, a part of the life of this church. And we want to raise them to know and fear the Lord. And so Presbyterians are not saying this is what saves their kids. They are hoping though, that in the act of obedience, which they see as, baptizing their infants, that God will reward that act of obedience by actually causing regeneration later in the child's life um, of saving the child. So that's really how it comes about. Then they also read places like in Acts 2 during Pentecost when we're told that the blessing of what God has done in Christ is for us and our children. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they understand that as meaning that children are also saved and should be part of that covenant community. Mm-hmm. And there are also a couple of references in the book of Acts where it mentions that the jailer and his entire household, uh, Cornelius, his entire household, That's right. uh, were all baptized. And they just, uh, I believe it'd be accurate to say that implies that children of all ages, the entire household. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're just trying to say in the most faithful way we can, why those who practice infant baptism, why they do in the scriptures that they they take it from. And we do want to do a fair job in doing that. Right. And so as Baptists, we obviously are different. We don't have it as part of our practice to baptize infants. What do you think is, is kind of, we can list multiple reasons, but what do you think is kind of the big reason why we don't baptize infants? Well, let me say, first of all, that I do understand the implications that our brothers and sisters uh, who hold to pedo baptism. I understand the implications that they're giving. I just believe that baptism that's preceded by faith is more explicit and prescribed mm. in the New Testament, and and I believe that it's clear. It's in the New Testament. You we said that you could not find a a passage that says baptize infants. But in the New Testament, over and over, you see where we are. Those who repent and believe right. are to be baptized. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are to, Matthew 28, go and preach the gospel and baptize those 
who believe right and then disciple them and and that just seems so prescriptive and clear absolutely yeah yeah baptism and personal faith not the faith of somebody else i think both go together repeatedly in the new testament that's huge another thing i know presbyterians have a problem with baptists about is they think we have a low view of the family and family discipleship because of this because we don't treat them we we treat them really as unbelievers until they make a public profession or they do, you know, join the church, being baptized, things like that. And I just want to say like that, that very well could be true. We want to be people who take very seriously that we're called to disciple our children and have that type of culture within our church. And I don't think we should leave our kids out of, you know, church events or discipleship or things like that. However, I, I think we're taking a little bit far to say that they should be included with all the responsibilities of membership if they aren't really believers. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I'm trying to think this out just logically. So the parents who have their infant baptized, they know that doesn't save them. And so they're going to evangelize them and dis- I don't even know if you can use the, I would use the word train. I wouldn't use the word necessarily disciple Mm. there, but we get the point. That's the same thing we're going to do as Baptist. Uh, They're looking, even though they gave the outward sign of the covenant, we're not going to give that because we believe the New Testament prescribes that that's done after faith is expressed. But both of us are seeing that we need to evangelize and train our children in the way of the Lord. So we would be just as passionate as they are. I know. Yeah, at least should be for sure. Question off the cuff. And so when does the child in in a church that practices uh, infant baptism when do they bear membership responsibilities? When when does that become formalized? Yeah, there's this uh, kind of confirmation that happens. I don't think there's a necessary age, but I know for my friends and family who are part of Presbyterian churches that it's been like, I think, teenage years or so. Yeah. Okay. And we don't, we don't have to, you know, take that out to... It's conclusion. I was just, I was just wondering. Yeah. So practically in the life of the church, it doesn't change a huge amount. Obviously, as we're pointing out, we should both be very, you know, intentional about evangelizing and training our children. Um, however, I just do, I, I do think that the nature of baptism is viewed differently by Baptists and Presbyterians or those who practice pedo baptism because for us, we are, we are looking at baptism as the thing which corresponds with our union with Christ, which has come about through regeneration. This is something God has done in saving us. Mm-hmm. So baptism is, is that initiation right really into the covenant community of people who are redeemed by God. We're demonstrating our union with God, but then also union with the church. Mm-hmm. And infants aren't doing that. You know, the initiation rights sure is into the covenant community, but it's not into the community of faith because they don't have necessary faith. 
Presbyterians would never claim that their children are demonstrating faith and thus they should be baptized. So they really say that baptism is more something done to you. It's something that's kind of like an outward, you know, applied from the outside in, um, and that it, it doesn't speak to anything that has happened on an individual level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Baptism with faith proceeding seems to embody so much more what the New Testament is is declaring. You yeah. know, through baptism, you're declaring the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is massive in the local church. It is it is your declaration of faith that you believe in this work that has saved you. That seems so important. Yeah. And then you're also expressing that to others to say that you embrace and believe the same thing that they do. And now there's this mutual account, accountability. Man, it, it just seems like that's the purpose of baptism in, in the New Testament. This is how you tell the world, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, I am now a part of the body of Christ. When you believe, when you're baptized, and now you come together in a local church and you are taught to obey all that Jesus has commanded you. Absolutely. And I've been told by pedo-baptists, why would the new covenant be less inclusive than the old covenant? Because in the old covenant, we're, you know, circumcising all these kids that we think are part of the covenant community. Why would that change in the new covenant where God has done so much in Christ and it's like better, it's a better covenant as Hebrews talks about. And to that, I say, that's exactly what I would be saying. The new covenant is more inclusive because we're saying that all of those who have faith, men and women, yes. should be those who are part of the covenant community, not just males, you know? Another curious question. So in the old covenant, they circumcised only the male. So we're we're kind of following that pattern, but I'm believing that uh, those who hold to pedo-baptism baptize males and females. Mm-hmm. And that would just, again, have to be by implication. Right. But why did they expand it? I think they just expand it because they know that in the New Testament, baptism is given as more of a universal call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is more inclusive. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I, out of all due respect, that's a lot of implication. Yeah. And and I get it. And, I, and brothers that are uh, smarter than me, wiser than me, more spiritual than me, there just seems to be much more clear prescription with faith preceding baptism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're Baptists. That's right. That's right. And I mean, it's it's great to talk about these things and to wrestle with what the Bible does say. And again, these are our brothers and sisters who believe differently than us. But I do think that there are good reasons to hold to credo baptism and yeah, to celebrate it. Yeah. Agreed. And by the way, man, baptism of believers in the church is such a special thing. Mm-hmm. Now, we wouldn't do it just because it's so significant, you know, because it feels so special. But there is um, a retelling of the gospel every time that's done. And, you know, you think of the two ordinances, right. which which are these memorials and these reminders and these expressions of the gospel. It's so fitting when one believes the gospel and they express it through baptism and the church sees that sign and we unite, it's it's just so gospel magnifying and God glorifying as well. Amen. Which is why I think Romans 6 is there. I mean, I know it's a tough text, but like 
the way that baptism symbolizes what has happened to us in Christ of the burial that he went through and then the resurrection that he is going to, that he went through that we are going to go through in, in the way that we live in, in newness of life. I just think that that's such an amazing, uh, sign that does happen at baptism that we miss when it's done to infants and also by implication, if it's just done through sprinkling, so I think that there are lots of ways to be, you know, considering these these texts and how it calls us to baptize. And I even think it declares our future resurrection mm-hmm. as well. Our death with him and our resurrection, our, our death to self now and our resurrection and union. We're seated in heavenly places now, but it also declares forward the, uh, the death of the body and the raising again uh, of in our glorified body. And I hate to be this simple, but. When you practice pedo baptism, the, the the individual doesn't experience all of those signs and the fullness of that message declared in, in baptism. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for this discussion. This has been this has been good as we throw around these uh, two topics. Thank you to our members who have submitted these questions. Yeah, and if anybody has anything to say, any pushback or questions, etc., we just want to direct you to send those to Pastor Stephen. Yeah. Um, since he's not here to defend himself. He would love it. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Thank y'all for listening to this episode of the first podcast until next time for your joy and God's glory. (music) 